Welcome to the Callback Podcast number 22. On this podcast, we interview John Regi. John Regi is one of the uh, comedic forces behind the uh, hit television show 30 Rock starring Tina Fey. Uh, John has also uh, worked on, oh my God, so many amazing television shows. He was uh, a showrunner on Will and Grace. He was a showrunner on Larry Sanders' show, one of my favorite shows of all time. And uh, if not the favorite show of all time, I love that show. And uh, John uh, was gracious enough to give us some time of his. He invited us down to uh, the studio where he's uh, working on a pilot uh, that he hopes to gets picked up this uh, this next pilot season. So we get, we went down to the Warner Brothers lot and uh, had a great time interviewing him in his office. It was super fun, and uh, you guys are in for a huge treat. I was aware of John years ago in the stand-up scene in Chicago, and even then, you know, people had been talking about him. And as a young comic, I'd heard about this guy who was just, you know, kind of really cutting edge and just uh, a, a great, great comic. And uh, he went on from comedy to do so many amazingly wonderful things in the uh, the area of television and other productions. So uh, I was really, really fortunate to uh, to actually get to interview him finally. So this was this was super fun. All right. Well, uh, with that out of the way, I'd like to thank again Eric Streeper for uh, setting up our website and keeping it going. Uh, callbackpodcast.com. If you haven't gone to the website, please do. Also, I urge you, please download our podcast from iTunes. Uh, and if you want, leave a comment. That'd be awesome. That helps us with uh, getting us rated and everything else. And uh, don't forget our Facebook page, Callback Podcast is on Facebook, and Twitter, at Callback Podcast. And with that out of the way, here's episode number 22 with the amazingly funny and amazingly gifted and talented John Regi. All right. Hey. Um, all right. So welcome to the Callback Podcast. We are here on the Warner Brothers lot with our very special guest, John Regi. Hey, everybody. John, thanks for joining us. Um, John is uh, a stand-up comic, or I know him from the stand-up comedy world uh, in Chicago. I want to say it was early 90s. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, I moved to L.A. in 1990, so it had to be before okay. that. The, yeah. yeah. I was... Uh, I was just starting out yeah. at the Funny Firm. But you were one of those guys that got on my radar pretty early because uh, I remember talking to everybody that would be coming through comics. And, you know, you're always asking, like, hey, who do you like? Who do you like? John Regi's name came up all the time. And then uh, specifically when it came to new material, like they, they would talk about, Man, I was in a car with John, blah, 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 talking about something. He goes up, he does 20 minutes on it. And yeah. The next gig. So you were, they were really into that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't... Uh, it's funny, I was just doing... I did this interview yesterday with this a lady that I met on Facebook somehow <laughs> who lives in Germany and was asking me about that too. And, you know, I just always was um, slightly bored by the sound of my own voice. So I was, I was always just looking for anything new to talk about. So if you would come and see my show at a club, the first 20 minutes of it would be like what I did that day <laughs> for better or for worse. Sometimes it wasn't right. And sometimes it was, but I was always, I, I think that was my writing process is I would just take it up on stage and say, let's see how this goes. I think this might be a funny story, but let me, let me work it out. Right, and that was the, the, by having that rep, uh, you became like a, a kind of a cult figure with other comics because they would want to check out, oh, did you hear what he talked about this time? Or, hey, this is what's going on. And as a young comic, that was really inspirational because it was like, okay, you would see these guys go up and do 
the same five minutes over and over and over again and just beat it to death. And whereas, like, if you can bank on somebody just going up there and at least giving you some something new every time, I think that's that's really admirable. And I don't know. So that's that's how I found out about you because back then when I was at the uh, firm, there was a shit ton of comics everywhere. I mean, and so to, to stand out from that crowd was really impressive. And uh, I know that I saw you there. You performed there a few times. because Yes. Was, uh, um, we had that... Remember that those those posters we would have with like yes. your name? Yeah. So I remember you were up on the wall. I'm like, oh, that's that guy. And so when you came in, you'd come in and be like, oh, yeah, I, you know, actually, your reputation precedes you. And uh, I always enjoyed your stuff. Um, I know that you were were you an improv guy at all too, or Zanies or not really. I I would do improv occasionally at uh, Who's on First with Steve Rudnick and Leo Benvenuti, oh. and it was like Steve and Leo and Bob Odenkirk and people like that, and it was very kind of loose. Right, right. Tom Giannis. There was that crowd, and we would do – there was a Sunday night improv thing that you could do there, and I would do that sometimes. Right. I lived in uh, – I grew up in Bensonville. I remember being like 16 years old and going to Who's On First, and they wouldn't let me in to go see a show. I wanted yeah. to see Amazing Jonathan. And they were like – I remember they like, oh, how does this work, comedy clubs? And they were like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, that, also – but that still happen to you, though? Yeah, pretty much. Anywhere I go, they were like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> in about two minutes, John's people are going to come over. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> um the uh, but if you did you play the improv in Chicago too or uh, yes you did yes yeah. I was uh, qu- sort of house MC kind of at the improv I got in with the improv I forget uh, Jamie Baker. Gertz's father Walter Gertz Walter Gertz yeah. uh, w- just liked me for some reason and uh, so I worked there quite a bit and I think I, I guess if I had a a home club there it was the improv i think that's that was the case but i do remember you coming over and doing sets at the firm and we'd run over and same thing try and catch sets over there and yeah i um, love the funny firm i love that place it was just like a people who don't know i it was just the craziest uh experience len um Ostrovich was just, he ran a, he knew, he was a comic, so that was great. So he ran a great club because he respected comics. But other than that, the place was just, like, it, it's so many weird, like, pe- you heard about Cobbs, and you heard about a couple other places in the country, but funny from people always wanted to come in and check it out, just because it was kind of off, it was just off, you know, yeah. it was a little different. And we'd have people there, like Hicks, Bill Hicks would play there, and other people would play there that you would not normally see in another place. And they would—they weren't safe comedians or guys that you know. I'm sure there were times where people would even try and adjust your act and like, "Hey, can you not do this or that, or maybe not, you know, spend 20 minutes talking about yourself up there for the first, you know?" And you know, there's oh yeah, that rubs people the wrong way sometimes when you're a club owner because they just want things, you know, one way. Yeah, for sure. They, um, I, I've never seen this, but supposedly I've heard from a couple people that there was a uh, line drawn on a map at the in the sort of corporate offices at the Funny Bone, and uh, and I was not to go south of that line in any of their clubs because uh, that was not going to work. That's awesome. Um, I was told that by Al Canal, and right. I was told that by Maureen Clyde, right. who's Tom Clyde's uh, wife, and uh, they both worked at the Funny Bone, and I'm pretty sure it's true. That's hilarious. And it's probably, well, w- good advice for those <laughs> clubs, too. Um, are you doing much stand-up these days? Uh, no, I don't. You know what? I do I do the uncab every now All and right. again, but, uh, you know, my thing is I feel like you know, first of all, I just kind of feel like stand-up is uh, – I think you have to 
I think you have to tailor your stand-up to where you are in your life. Like, right. I, I think... I watch comics as they get older, and when you're the act that you're doing at 25, you just can't do when you're 40. <laughs> you look like a goon. Yeah. You look like you because if you're writing about whatever it is that you're writing about, hopefully you're writing about whatever is personal to you at that time. You can't be doing your 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 25 year old material when you're 40. That's why I like George Car. Like to me, I think George Carlin was a genius in that because he went from being like hippy dippy weatherman you know, stoner guy to just, like, mean, old, cranky fuck who hated everybody <laughs> and everything and would just do... I remember him doing the thing about... Uh, if you're going to, if you buy a dog, you are buying a tragedy. Oh, I remember God. him saying that and how the dog was going to die and it would die horribly and just unapologetic and great. And I think of everybody I've seen... You know, and God rest his soul, he's gone now. But like, if everybody I saw get older, I always thought that guy knows how to do it. Like his his humor is him now at that age, as opposed to standing up there and going, "Why is there no blue food?" You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> you can't be sixty and say that. You just look weird. You know? Yeah, and uh, who, uh, like uh, who, there was a couple of comics that made their living out of doing bits about living in their parents' basement, and they're like, they're like 50 years old. It's like, oh, really? Are right. you still living in your parents' right. basement? It's like Jerry wondering where the other sock is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't really do it anymore. <laughs> Plus, also, um, the, uh, as, as comics become more successful, you know, we want to see and hear about somebody's trials and somebody's, you know, like, hardships. You know, we don't want to, hey, you know, everything's working out for me. Everything's great. Right. Oh, so right. Thanks for coming out. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, because um, I've never been into safe comedy like that. You know, the whole, like, oh, have you ever noticed or any of that kind of stuff. It's all, the stuff that's always gotten to me is where I walk away going, I just learned something about this person. Right. So, I, I appreciate that you said that. I remember exactly the, the dog comment. In fact, I've, I used to be married. And I said that to my ex-wife. I'm like, you know what? You're buying a tragedy. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, and it, it resonated with me. And and um, that's it. So you did you did a you did a one night stand? Yes. Yeah. So that was on Comedy Central. Did you do any other specials? It was an HBO one night stand. Oh, I'm actually. sorry. Pardon yeah. me. Yeah. It's been repeated on Comedy Central. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was nominated for a Cable Ace Award, Cable's awesome. highest honor, <laughs> the Cable Ace, which they then decided to stop giving out. Yeah. So I guess it wasn't that high of an honor. But actually, I lost to George Carlin. Oh, well, there you go. Because he had his special on at the same time. That felt good. And uh, yeah, that was pretty good. That was um, pretty good. So did, did you, uh, from there... You, I mean, obviously, were you headlining when you moved out of, to L.A.? Yes, most places. How fast did you become a headliner? Um, boy, I don't know. I would not say. It certainly didn't feel super fast, although maybe it was. But um, I don't know. I felt like I did a couple years on the road, two or three years on the road, before I started headlining pretty much all the time. Yeah, because I knew you as a headliner already. You had already yeah. made that jump. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're uh, in that group. Yeah, because I had started in Ohio and Cincinnati where I'm from, and that's how I met the whole Chicago oh, wow. sort of uh, posse that wound up – because there was a club I started out in Cincinnati called DWI, and, uh, and it was a college bar, and on Friday and Saturday nights they had uh, comedy shows there, and uh, they would – there was a whole group of guys that started out there, and um, – and then they started bringing in headliners from Chicago uh, quite often. 
actually one of the first headliners was Will Durst. Like Will oh. was in Cincinnati doing a play or something, and he came to DWI, and he was like, that was like an alien flew down from outer space and just right. was we were just at praying at his altar because we couldn't believe him. And I would say he is probably one of the influences for me to too, as far as a guy that I saw that would just go up and talk about the day or what was on his mind or something in the paper that he read that would piss him off or whatever it was. And was he would he just really turn comedy book? into it. Yes, not as much as he is now, but he was always very socially aware of, of what he was talking about. I saw him do a set in Ireland. Um, I was doing the Cat Labs Festival, and he was there. And they needed a – he wanted a backdrop of the United States. And they, they, they didn't include a bunch of states. Like, it was all wrong. He was so mad. He's like, what? This isn't what I want. This isn't the United States. And he was just yeah. so upset. Yeah. Barry, Barry Crimmins, in, when I lived in Boston, Barry Crimmins used to do a thing about a lot of political humor – and he would put he would take a map and he would un he would buy these maps at like you know a bookstore and he would tack the map up on the back wall and he goes this is the map of the world and the United States is in the middle of the world and why is that because we make the fucking maps <laughs> um, so. But, yeah, those guys were all big sort of influences on me. Oh, cool. So you, you start – I didn't realize you came from Cincinnati. I always thought you were a Chicago guy. Um, no, I started in Cincinnati, and then I moved to Chicago for about – I'm sorry. I moved to Boston for about, I don't know, eight months, not very long, and uh, met all those guys up there and then came back home and then moved to Chicago to really, st- in earnest, start my career. I really do credit Chicago with being yeah. like – I still sort of say it. it's. I think I listed as my hometown on my Facebook page, <laughs> so that's I real. Think you do too. I actually think you do. Um, so you you started uh, doing that. Did you move out here with a job, or did no. you no? You just kind of no. Went. I moved out here because Dennis Miller came to uh, the Chicago Improv, and I worked with him for a week, and we became very good friends very quickly. And the, I remember. The way it happened was every night he would go on stage, and at the improv, there was this sort of half-dead uh, yucca plant on the stage. Like, it literally was dying from, like, all the <laughs> cigarette smoke, and they never watered it. And it was I don't even know why it was up there, but it was this sort of half-dead plant. And um, so he would go up on stage, and every single night he would say, yeah, it's uh, great to be here in Chicago. It's beautiful club and uh nice to see a beautiful example of the local fauna here on stage (laughs) so after like the third day or the fourth day of him doing that i walked up to him one night i was at he was at the bar and i said dennis you know i don't mean to be an asshole or anything but uh you know when you talk about that plant you keep calling it fauna and it's flora it's not fauna and he's like, are you sure, Rach? And I was like, no, I was a biology major. I'm positive <laughs> that flora is plants and fauna is animals, refers to animals. And he said to me, you know, man, I don't, re- I don't pretend to know what half the fucking shit is I talk about. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I almost said that I was going, wait, isn't that the opposite? Yeah. yeah. So we sort of became friends. And then he was the one who said to me, you've got to get out of Chicago. You've got to move to L.A. Oh, cool. And then I came out and moved to L.A., and I'd also become friends with Rob Schneider, 
and uh, and I just moved out here, and then. Rob Schneider's stand-up was amazing. Yeah. Like, I, I used to see him at the Improv in Chicago, and he would kill it. And, he, and there were times where it actually didn't go well, but he would just, he just, the confidence and what he did was just, like, inspirational. He would, yeah, I remember one time you read out Elvis and me, remember we would do that? Yeah. <laughs> and he would, people would pick a page, you know, page one to whatever, and he would pick a page, and he would read out Elvis and me, and it was just fucking hilarious he told me that uh he was first of all he was elvis in japan you know that right oh no i didn't know that yeah he was elvis in japan like he was he was an elvis he got a job as an elvis impersonator (laughs) in japan and this is absolutely the truth or at least he told me it was the truth and he said and he he used to say in his stand-up he would say i was elvis in japan and he goes i know that sounds weird but uh he goes what you have to realize is if you go to japan you look more like Elvis than anybody else there. So you can pretty much be Elvis in Japan. And um, I've never thought of it that way. It's completely true. Yeah, yeah. And he did. And he just looked like Elvis. In, he was Elvis in Japan. But he, he used to read from Elvis and me. That was yeah. a big thing in his act was he would read from Elvis and me. And he would do Elvis on a fish hook. I don't know if you remember <laughs> that. But uh, he, do, he, he had a lot of Elvis-based you know, based material. Um, and he told me that one night he bombed so badly that they just wanted to kill him. And like Rob was the kind of comic that if he wanted to, he would just torture them further by just continuing. And it was almost kind of Kaufman-esque where he would just read page after page of this book and they just hated it. (laughs) So I don't know where it was. I forget. But he told me that he got off to, like, thunderous applause that he was finally off stage. And he convinced the headliner, he said, let me go back up. (laughs) And he said the sound in that room was like a wave (laughs) of booze that just moved. As he moved through, like, they introduced the headliner, and then he started walking back up there, and people were applauding. And as he would go... By sections of the room, the applause would turn into just this wave of booze that went with him as he went back up there. I I heard that story. I knew that story, and I was I and it was one of my favorite stories. I think it happened in San Francisco. I'm not sure, yeah. but yeah, yeah, where it's it's a legendary story where he just tortured people. He'd go right back up on stage and do another 20 minutes. To and the, he's not even starting fresh. He's doing 20 minutes from the worst position you could start from. And yeah. He just just fucking eat it for another 20. Yeah. But that was you know in back in those days, like a guy like that. That's how people heard about him and like that's how I knew him. You know, it was like oh wow, that's a guy that's you know I would run over and try and catch a set because it's like he's always going to do something that's going to you know be a little different and everything else. So Dennis Miller. So let's get to that. You worked on the Dennis Miller show. Yes, right. the original one, not yeah. the not the HBO one. The oh, talk the, show. the talk show. Okay. Yes. Oh, I thought it was the HBO one. Yeah. Um, so uh, with an amazing writing staff, there was the writers on that show were in, it was crazy. Did he carry any of them over? Like, I he carried Eddie Feldman over, uh, but the Did writers, uh, no Eddie Feldman, Eddie this Feldman? guy named oh, Eddie, Eddie Feldman. Feldman. But um, there was a there was myself. There was Steve Rudnick and Leo Benvenuti oh, who were wow. screenwriters and from Chicago. There was Kevin Rooney. There was a good friend of mine who's since passed away, Drake Sather, who was oh, an amazing very funny. comic. Very funny. Uh, there was Max Muchnick and David Cohen, who created Will and Grace. Right. Um, were they uh, a team? Yes. There was a guy named Mark Brazil, who uh, who was uh, who created uh, didn't create it, but was on that '70s show and is a 
pretty successful television writer. I mean, there were a bunch of people on that. Oh, Norm McDonald was oh, in wow. that staff. I mean, it was insane, the staff we had. Oh, that's awesome. And so... You, I noticed. And we got canceled after eight months. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, didn't it, after didn't wasn't the story that that at, at one point Dennis just was not into it. He's like, I'm interviewing whatever this person, and then I, you know. Yeah, Dennis was. I don't think Dennis really wanted to do a talk show, and and also I will say that you know that staff was, we were doing what, what the kind of humor that they're kind of doing on Conan. Right. Like we, but we were doing it back then, and people yeah. didn't know what the hell we were doing. Like we were doing insane crazy just sort of really esoteric stuff because dennis kind of let us do whatever we wanted yeah it was kind of a free kind of a free reign you know like kind of a free feeling uh about the show was it syndicated yeah so it was yeah it was, it was uh it was syndicated by tribune and uh subsequently canceled by tribune <laughs> yeah, um you know i uh I, I was used to do monologue jokes for the Martin Short show. And the first ep, the first show I got a uh, a joke on that was preempted for um, it was by the Tribune Company, I think, too. It was preempted for uh, the George Foreman Grill infomercial, and they, I, I called the station like, "What the fuck?" Like, and they're like, "Well, actually, we make more money off the infomercial than we do on the thing." Yeah. And so they replaced it for a week, and they're like, "Are you kidding me?" It's the first. All my friends all gathered around. You're gonna see my joke on TV, and it's like, "Oh, it's the yeah. worst." But um. So, did, did is this what led you into um, more writing and less stand up, or you? Because you started doing stuff for like ta- like award shows and things like that too, right? Yeah. Well, I knew a bunch of people. I got to know a lot of people out here, and I I hooked up with a, this is a guy, a friend of mine, Joel Gallen, who was working doing a lot of MTV stuff back then. Okay. And I started doing the the video music awards and the movie awards. And this was back when the movie awards when no one came to the movie. Like <laughs> nobody came to the movie awards. And uh, it's not like now. Now it's super cool. But the VMAs were awesome because you'd see these great bands and stuff like that. But it was uh, – uh, and then I met uh, Don Misher and started doing the Emmys and stuff like that. And, you know, that's really hard writing because yeah. you have to write that pattern. And it's generally very thankless job and very hard to deliver, you know. That is not a comedy audience right. that's sitting in that crowd. They, all they want to know, having been there now myself, you don't want to hear anybody's fucking jokes. You want to know, <laughs> did I win the Emmy or did I not win the Emmy? And if I didn't win the Emmy, I would like to go drink. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's all there really is to it. So it's so tough to get a laugh oh, wow. in those situations, I think. Um, I remember being – because I, I remember you were doing one of the shows, and it was as a – for some reason, it was like uh, as a comic, you were always like, "Wow, like oh, that that felt like a big break." And it's funny to hear you talk about how like it's just like eh, it's just you know it was just a grind because it's obviously not super rewarding because you're like you said the the, the end result is you know somebody either is going to win not win like you know nobody's really paying attention to the and also you have to the people who deliver your lines right right you have to be like you know. Right. They're nervous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of them aren't comics. You know, I'm not, I don't want to belittle it. It was great. Like, mm-hmm. it was super awesome and really fun. And for sure, the most fun thing we would do, it wasn't necessarily comedic, but the arrivals at the Emmys are the coolest thing to do because what happens is, is like all the really hot people get there between, like, if it starts at five o'clock, all the big stars get there at like 4 30. To 5 o'clock. Even though they say at 4.45 we're shutting the doors if you're not in here 
you know, if you're Sean Penn, right. they're going to let you yeah, in, exactly. and they know that. So everybody shows up at the last minute. Everybody who's big shows up at the last minute. And I'm, and I'm sure – I haven't worked the Oscars, but I'm sure they do it this, the same way. So basically what they do is they just run out with like – they have like 30 guys with cameras, and they're just running around in the crowd on the red carpet. And they're just trying to get those little snippets – of what you see at home when you're watching these people arrive. So then what happens is they go out there and get that. Now it's like 20 to 5. Oh, wow. And you're going on live in 20 minutes. And what happens is they throw all this film to the editors. The editors cut it together, and now it's like quarter till 5. And then the writers sit in the room, and we watch the footage, and you just think of one line to say oh, wow. for the announcer to go, you know, the hilarious Jerry Seinfeld, you know, three-time Emmy winner, whatever. And people are giving you, like, um, background on who's there. If there's someone who's never won before, like, you've got background, and you're trying to put something in. And you're writing all this shit, and then literally, it is like the beginning of broadcast news. Somebody is running that fucking tape <laughs> down the hall at 5 till 5 to get it up on the satellite so that it's ready to go wow. when they start on the West Coast and or on the East Coast. And it's intense. It's like super right. intense. I'm stressed out just hearing <laughs> Yeah, <tell> it's crazy. <laughs> that, between that and the bomb check... <laughs> when oh they when God. they when they lock you in and bring in the they they lock the place down and then they bring in the dogs with the you know the bomb sniffing dogs and stuff and sweep the entire venue. Is that a, a thing that happens every? Oh time? yeah, absolutely. Oh my God. And when you see the crazies across the street saying, you know, oh, that's right. God hates Hollywood, Hollywood and that, you know oh. all that stuff, you're like, well, this could happen. <laughs> it oh could God. happen. This might be my last day on earth. <laughs> so and what, what did I write? You know, it's like you write this thing that like. Maybe didn't work. Have you? Uh, is there is there something that sticks out that you wrote that was like, oh wow, that yeah, that that was fucking funny. Even if nobody thought it was funny, you knew it was funny. I don't remember any of the ones that I wrote um, for the Emmys that worked. But I always remember I had because you didn't write just write funny right. stuff. You wrote everything, and I always remember the one I wrote for outstanding writing achievement in a drama, <laughs> and it was. Uh, it's so embarrassing, but I wrote, but I wrote before, before an actor acts or a camera rolls, a writer writes. The nominees for outstanding writing and drama are. It was pretty cheese ball. Oh my god, that is hilarious. And it got on, and I thought that was pretty funny. Like I was like, whatever. But I still think to this day, it's like anytime. You know, I just wrote some jokes for uh, Tina and Amy. I was going to ask you if you were going to tell us. And uh, uh, I, I got a bunch of them went in, and then they got cut for time. But the one that got on was, uh, it was I, I said it to him. I, I sent him a note and said it's a bookender, so you can both get part of this. And so Tina's was, um, the Hunger Games is nominated this year, which is what I call the six weeks it took me to get in this dress. And then Amy said, and so is Life of Pi, which was what I'll call the six weeks after I get out of this dress. <laughs> I remember uh, that joke. Um, I remember because I, I remember you writing that you you got one on, and I was thinking, oh, it's got to be that Anne Hathaway yeah. one. The evil one? <laughs> no. like, I haven't seen her look that uncomfortable since she was on stage. <laughs> yeah. No, I wrote some really evil ones, but fortunately they didn't use them. But... Uh, uh, it was really thrilling. Like I was like I was sitting at home. I was like I can't believe they used my joke. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Did uh um didn't didn't 
Tina's dad write a joke that got on or something like that? I thought I... Well, I don't know. Maybe. Um, We'll jump ahead to to, to Tina. I'm really curious about how um, you got into that. Now, you're... Were you, at this point, you're writing for... We left you at Dennis Miller. You're um, now working on... uh, Doing the, the are you doing the award shows at the same time or is it, I was doing cool, like guys I was doing Dennis Miller and I was doing I was doing uh, um, writing award shows and stuff like that when I could I mean Dennis Miller was a you know it's a strip show and those mm-hmm. shows are really great in one way because unlike writing you don't get a chance to rewrite like you yeah, basically meet in the morning up. and you decide what you're going to do and you write the monologue and yeah. then you whatever. Um, and so in that way, it's, it's great because it just goes by and you're not sitting in it for the 15th time going, I'm so sick of this script. I can't even, I just want to vomit because it just kind of goes out there. The other part of it is though, is it's, it's four days a week. We would shoot two shows on Thursday on Dennis Miller. So we'd shoot the Friday show on Thursday. And, um, and so it was kind of hard to do anything else while that right. show was going on. Basically, I would do award shows and stuff like that when I was on Larry Sanders because we okay. had a really long hiatus because we only would do 13 episodes of Larry Sanders. I think the most we ever did was 17. So that brings us to Larry Sanders. Yeah. One of my – I always say it's my favorite show. I don't like speaking in absolutes, but I think it really is my favorite show uh, that's, that's ever been I, – I love that show. I miss it. And um, and how how did you hook up with that? How did that happen? Um, I no, did you have specs at this time? No, no, you no. had no writing samples. Specs are where you like have a um, say like a, there's a like a Thirty Rock. Somebody would write a spec of a Thirty Rock, which is like their take on the on Thirty Rock, and they wouldn't necessarily give it to Thirty Rock. They give it to someone else, like in another you know like another show to show that you can capture the voice of the show, that you know that the, the the patter, you know, that the the outline, you know, the out marks and all that. But uh, um, you had none of that at this point. No, and I had never written a script before. And and uh, the only way that it happened was we got canceled. The Larry, I mean, uh, the Dennis Miller show got canceled, and uh, which was another hilarious moment because Dennis just walked up and down the aisle, up and down the offices, <laughs> and just stuck his head in and was like, "We're canceled." <laughs> that's how we found out and uh we knew something was happening because all these big wigs from tribute came in uh-huh. and our numbers were terrible and uh and then we got canceled and then i remember i heard women screaming in the office and i walked out in the hallway and kevin rooney was standing at the top of the stairs completely naked <laughs> with just his baseball hat on <laughs> Going, I can't fucking believe we got canceled. What the hell? I mean, this is a good show. And, uh, but it was kind of like that. It was kind of like that. But at any rate, um, what happened was, is I had uh, read for the Larry Sanders show as an actor for the part that ultimately went to Jeremy Piven. Um, And in a weird kind of... uh, turn of events, my managers, which was Brillstein Gray, were also the executive producers of the Larry Sanders show and the, and Gary's manager. And the fact of the matter is, uh, and I guess I can say this, if I get threatened, you'll have to cut this part out. Uh. But, um, the truth was 
the Dennis Miller show or the whatever person's show it was going to be, the syndicated talk show that Dennis Miller ultimately took and the Larry Sanders show basically both started around the same time or were up Mm -hmm. and running at the same time. And Brad Gray and everyone at Brillstein Gray really thought that the syndicated talk show was going to be this big thing. And as a matter of fact, Brad Gray had sold the Dennis Miller talk show based upon the idea that it was going to be the Gary Shandling show, talk show. And at the last minute, Gary backed out because he didn't want to do it. Because he had hosted The Tonight Show for years for Johnny. And Brad, being the amazing businessman that he is, managed to talk Tribune into saying, okay, I... We don't have Gary Shandling, but how do you feel about Dennis Miller? Wouldn't Dennis Miller be great in this job? So they gave the talk show to Dennis. I was a staff writer on the Dennis Miller show and at the time still pursuing acting. Right. So the Larry Sanders show was going into production. So I went over and read for the part of Jerry. And... uh and I was also going down at that time to, to Miami to shoot my one-night stand. When I got off the plane in Miami, <laughs> I found out that I got the role. Oh, that's awesome. Brillstein Gray wouldn't let me out of my contract. Oh, I knew that was coming. Oh, my God. <laughs> Even though I was a staff writer and I was week to week, they wouldn't let me out of my contract because they didn't want... They didn't want Dennis to feel like they didn't have any faith in that show. And they were pulling writers off of, or people off of that show to go work on this unproven Larry Sanders show. So I didn't get the part. And it went to Jeremy Piven. So I was obsessed with the Larry Sanders show from the moment it came on the air. From the moment I read that script, I was obsessed about it. So Dennis Miller got canceled. I wrote a spec script about a writer who, after the Dennis Miller show gets canceled, (laughs) goes over and starts writing on the Larry Sanders show, and Dennis comes to the Larry Sanders show as a guest and doesn't know that this writer has been hired by Larry, and they get into a big fight about it and it kind of ruins their friendship. And he's saying, so what were you, were just waiting for me to fail so you could get all my best writers over here. So I wrote this script. I mean, it's kind of when I describe it, it's kind of like the world's kind of collapsing on itself. Cause it really can't be Dennis on the Larry Sanders show because Larry Sanders is not a real person. And Dennis Miller is whatever. First script Um, you've ever written. First script I ever wrote. So I wrote it and I met with Gary and uh, Paul Sims And uh, Chris Thompson was in the room, and um, I talked to Gary for a long time, and he said, I'm just really worried. I like your script a lot. I like your writing, but I'm just really worried. I know you wanted to be an actor on the show, and I know that didn't work out, and I'm just afraid that if I hire you, we're going to – you're going to wind up being unhappy because you, you wanted to be an actor, and now you're a writer. And I said, I don't care about that. I just want to work on the show. I I really don't care if I'm a writer or an actor. I just want to be involved in the Larry Sanders show. So I left. I didn't hear anything for a long time. What's a long time? I don't know. Three weeks. Oh. Um, 
and the the HBO uh, the 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 Cable Ace Awards, Cable's highest <laughs> honor. Uh, mine were untelevised. Uh, my so I rent my little tuxedo and I go over to this venue and uh, go with my at that time my boyfriend at the time and and we uh, sit there and I don't win and it's oh. like whatever. And so the next night, uh, Carolyn Strauss, who was a friend of mine, had said, "Why don't you come to the HBO party at Campanile?" Because um, she knew everything that was going on with Larry Sanders, and she was like, "Gary's going to be there. Maybe you can talk to him." So I said, "No, I'm not going to do that." And I'm just—I'm not good at that kind of stuff, or I certainly wasn't good at that back then. And I have to say, David, my partner, basically said to me. Put your fucking tux on. Go down to Campanile. They're telling you to go down there. Go down to Campanile and talk to Gary to Gary about this job. That's what you want. Just go do it. So I put my tux on, and I went down to Campanile. And I don't know if you've ever been in Campanile, but there are two arches in the back, and I stood under the second one on the left and stood there for a long time and saw Paul Sims, and, Paul, and Gary was up in a private room upstairs, and Paul said, I'll go get Gary. Wow. And stay here, and I'll go get him. And I waited about 20 minutes, and Gary finally came down, and he said to me, are you sure? Are you sure that you want to do this? you sure you want to work on the show? And I was like, I'm positive. I promise I promise. I want to write on the show. I promise I, I, I really want to do it. And that was on Sunday, and I got hired on that Wednesday. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. And that's how it started. That's why when, when writers come to me and say, how do I do it? I'm like, dude, I don't know. No I did it in such a different way than most people. And and now it makes me sad, too, because studios in the world is so litigious. Like, people send me scripts all the time, and I'm literally not supposed to read them. Mm-hmm. Like, Warner Brothers has a policy of, like, don't read any unsolicited material. Because then if we do a show that's like that thing that you read... That writer can then claim, well, you saw it, and then you took the idea. You know what I mean? I always have to hand it to the legal department. I don't even know what happens to it after that, you know? So it's hard. But I kind of went around that and did it a different way. Wow, that's awesome. And the the fact that you even wrote a spec that they read for that show was unusual, too. I was really – he knew me from stand-up. I used to go to – down to – what's the place in Hermosa Beach? Oh, the the Comedy Magic. Comedy Magic Club. I used to go down there and do sets, and he would go down there on Sunday nights, and I would see him sometimes, and he always liked my stand-up. And he was also a person who was like a mentor to me because I always kind of felt like, you know, and I'm not not against jokes, but Gary also did like stories, more story Mm -hmm. kind of things, and I was also of that ilk and... And so uh, we just kind of knew each other, and he would always stay and watch my sets and stuff like that. So I had an in with him anyway. Oh, cool. So, yeah, he seemed. Uh, I remember a couple comics coming through uh, the firm and them talking about how he he was all about younger comics and yeah. helping people out. And and uh, and you guys, I I'm telling you, you you need to check out. It's now on Netflix. I think the Larry Sanders show. It's really really worth your time. It's amazing. So. You, you obviously are learning the craft of writing now because you haven't. That was the first thing you've ever written. So now you're writing scripts for Larry. St- like, are you learning? Like, oh my gosh, there's they're 23 pages long or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, well, yeah. And then Larry Sanders was a really sort of. Rare, it was its own little private. It's a, not private, but its own little separate animal because we didn't really have act breaks on that show. Yeah. We had like 
it was just like I remember someone saying to me, "What is the, what is the act break?" And me saying, "I don't know. What is the what is an act break?" <laughs> like I didn't know. Like I couldn't describe it at that time. I could not tell you what an act break really was, and because we didn't really have them, we'd write like thirty or thirty-two page scripts. And Larry Sanders was also very improvisational. Like Gary was very good at saying, "We'd get on the floor, and if the scene wasn't working, we'd just say it's not working." Let's do this. Let's change everything. And Jeff and Rip and Gary could just roll and do it differently. And the the caliber, that was the first thing I realized about it pretty quickly was the caliber of actor I was working with was way above what most other people. That was my first writing job. And it's like awesome. these people were... I mean, it wasn't just like they take your joke and do it well. They just hit it out of the park. They do something completely different with it. They turn it into a whole other thing you weren't expecting. It's a salty dog. Drink it, you pussy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, there, uh, you guys also broke a lot of stories on that show. Like you, the Ellen thing mm-hmm. was first on, on Larry Sanders. Yeah. The Tom Snyder thing, right, yeah. was first kind of joked about, but then it became a real thing. Yeah. Um, and then there was, I think there was like something else where I remember thinking, wow, like this, it was also, as for, for a comic, you're like, this is where I'm getting my news from. This is where I'm getting, like, the industry. And I, I'm assuming you wrote the monologue part last so that you can make it as topical as possible. Yeah, we used to get uh, guys come in, like Chris Henchy would come and, and uh, Jeff Cesario. And we'd get, oh, like, no two or three other guys to come in. And we would write monologue jokes. And then what we would do is... Because of everything that we did, I would say that that was Gary's least favorite part was doing the monologues. Because we would shoot everything on film, but on what we would do is we'd have what we would call a talk show night, which was usually on a Friday. Because we shot Larry Sanders in two days, which is really wow. extraordinary. Because that means you're shooting like 17 pages a day, and for a single camera show, that's, that's crazy. crazy. But we were shooting; th- we'd shoot three cameras simultaneously. It wasn't really truly a single camera show. But even at that, that's moving incredibly fast. It was, but you know, we never left those sets, so we were always on those sets. But that show, like I remember, we didn't even have a dolly when we would do walk and talks <laughs> on that show. Our ad, I mean, our yeah, our our, uh, our DP Peter Smokler would put on rollerblades. This is the truth. <laughs> this is how low brow, awesome. how low budget we were. He, they'd put on rollerblades and and they'd put a belt on him. And two grips would grab the belt, and they'd pull him down backwards, and he'd shoot while while they were pulling oh him on God. rollerblades. I thought for sure you were going to say, like, uh, um, what's a, a handicap with the wheelchairs? Like, I thought oh, you were yeah. going to say yeah. rollerblades. I've never heard that before. Yeah, awesome. it was really cool. I have pictures of Peter. He was a really good rollerblader, and he'd just rollerblade <laughs> all over the place. So there's these great pictures of him on rollerblades being pulled down the hall by, by, uh, by grips, and then, like, Gary and... And uh, Jeff and Rip walking in a threesome down the hallway. That's awesome. That back through those crash doors. I can't tell you how many times we did it. <laughs> the um, the finale of Larry Sanders went up the same week as the Seinfeld finale. Right. And I remember being way more gutted about Larry Sanders going off the air than Seinfeld. Yeah. And not to break off on a tangent, but sitting here, I finally realized how I recognize you is from an episode of Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was uh, on Seinfeld. Yeah. You, you were a bank teller who didn't say hello to Kramer. Yeah. You wanted $100. I, I, yeah. I had to say um, uh, something hello, uh, uh, a cheery hello or something like that. 
and he tricked me. He walked in and was like, hey, and I was like, hey, and he's like, you didn't say it! <laughs> and it was like that. Um, wow, so... Uh, were you with it the entire time, the Larry Sanders show? Till the end? I left season – I was not there for the last two seasons. Last two seasons? I was there for four. Were you – was this the Dana Carvey show now or what were you You know, I, I, uh, I've I never worked on the Dana Carvey show. I know it's on IMDb. Yeah. I don't know why it is. Oh, uh, that was – yeah, I was like, oh, I was, I was like, that would have made perfect sense because it lasted two episodes, right? Yeah, <laughs> or less, I think. <laughs> you know, like, you um, think right? I don't know why that's on my list of credits, but I'm like, oh, oh I wow. like that show, so I'll take it, sure. Oh, wow. Yeah, I had not I, – I was telling Edgar, I'm like, I did not know he was on that show. I can't wait to ask him about that. I told you a question lined up, too. Yeah, I was like, yeah, oh, that's I great. have no – I know people who were on it but uh i feel good about myself now i kind of knew I, I was like I, i'm surprised i didn't know that yeah no. i don't know why that's on there that's hilarious so uh so imdb people if you're listening you take go. that off because yeah. i don't know how that works is there anything on your wikipedia page that isn't true either um you know what i i tried to put on my wikipedia page that um and it was up there for about four days. I tried to put, when I was at 30 Rock, I tried to put on my Wikipedia page because I sort of kind of did believe this, that I had invented the terms pleather and gentleman's club. <laughs> and I put it up there and it was on there for like, actually my friend Kay Canna put it up there and it was on there for like three days and then they took oh, it down. Oh, that's hilarious. But I still, gentleman's club, I won't totally fight for that one, <laughs> but I swear to God, I think I was the first person to ever say pleather. That's <laughs> Um, uh, and it was just last week. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you, uh, you, uh, the Larry Sanders show, were you, were you look, why did you leave? Were you looking to get your scripts made? Were you, um, were you, and, you know, it was, it, it, uh, it just got to the point where I felt like I should go because, um. Did you direct an episode of Larry Yes, Sanders? I directed one. Okay. Um. I just think that it's – you get to a point on a show where you know that it's just time to move on. Right, right. It was it's just logical. Time. Did it you, was just did time you to know go. that you wanted to direct or is that something like, oh, okay, um, this is a new Yeah, challenge. I always wanted to try yeah. it, yeah. I always have been really fascinated by production. Like I like being on the floor right. and I like – you know, I like I like talking to the camera guys, and I like figuring out how stuff works and how to set up shots, and and I like working with actors, and so all that stuff was, you know, leading me towards that. Basically, my friend Todd Holland, who's a really good, wonderful director, um, kind of kind of really encouraged me and said, okay. "You should definitely shoot one." And uh, then I did, and I and I really really liked it. It's always. Um, uh, it's just very challenging, and I think it makes you a better writer. Did you do your own script? No, I did. I forget who wrote the script. Yeah. I did. Was it? Uh, were you guys on the set as as writers? On the, yes, and I was oh. down there all the time. I was there every week. Okay, so that's how you kind of like saw how everything kind of fit into place and all that. Yeah, and then once I was the showrunner, it was you. I was there all yeah. the time, and the writers generally didn't. I don't think the writers came down very much to the floor. I think the writers, basically the way we would do it is you'd, the writers would get one draft on Larry Sanders. And that was mainly because it was moving so fast because right. we were always writing at the last minute. And then what would happen is it was a really very tough schedule because we'd shoot on Thursday and Friday. And then the next script would be ready. And Gary generally would not have notes on that script till Sunday. 
And then we'd have the table read on Monday. So oh, wow. Maya Forbes, who was my partner on it, and I would go over to Gary's place on a Sunday afternoon, and he'd give us notes. And then we'd go back to her place and cry for an hour about <laughs> how much work we had to do and go drink coffee at Starbucks. And then about seven or eight, we'd flip a coin, and one of us would take the first half, and the other one would take the second half. Oh, wow. And we'd just write all night. And we'd write till like, four in the morning. Yeah. And then we'd go to the table read. Do you like ten. writing at night? No. Not anymore. No. I like writing at night. I don't know why. You do? Yeah. I think people have a preference either morning or night. And I I really can't get my brain started to about 11. And I would say from like 11 to 4 is my yeah. time when I write. Now, do you discipline yourself? Like uh, we're in your offices right now. Is this one of those things where uh, if I go to the office, then I'll, I'll definitely put my game face on. I'll work when I'm at the office. Or do you like hanging out at your place or like where do you feel comfortable writing i like writing here because there's less distractions you can't get any porn here at all because we're behind a firewall you know so that's helpful (laughs) uh that really cuts down on the downtime (laughs) sure um and uh but I just feel like... Wouldn't that be funny? They find out, like, the Warner Brothers lot, like, the, the internet goes out and goes down, and then next thing you know, they, they get, like, all these... They're inundated with all these scripts that everybody's like, just been really prolific. It's like, wow, look at what everyone's turned in this week. It really is true, though. If you, if you, try, to, if you try to get up anything even remotely, I, I just... It can even be sometimes just the most uh, mundane thing, but uh, Sylvester, the, Sylvester the Cat comes up, and it says, Suffer and Succotash. <laughs> Oh, it does? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Oh, that's, that's, that's like their block? Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. It says, you're not allowed at the, on this site. Suffer and suck Suffer and suck That's awesome. I taught I taught I thought I saw. Um, so, uh, I, did you, you moved from Larry Sanders. You were a showrunner there. Are you only going to be showrunners now? Like a showrunner you, at your next job? I can't remember. Was it Will? Uh, the next job after Larry Sanders is I was – I came here, I think. Oh, no. After Larry Sanders, I was in a development deal with Brillstein Gray, which okay. was super weird because they, again, were my managers and they were offering me – For those of you don't, you guys, I'm telling you, Brillstein Gray, I grew up reading like uh, – John, they were John Belushi's uh, uh, manager. Yeah, like they're they, legendary. They were like legendary, like the guys you wanted to be with, and and uh, that's amazing that you were. You were and Bernie Brillstein was the nicest, kindest, greatest guy, and discovered all these people and was friends with Lauren Michaels and like the the legendary like first cast of SNL with like Chevy and Gilda and all those people. Like Bernie knew all those people and. And did, you know, built this company, and then Brad came in and really helped build it up to this giant thing. But those guys were really, really, really good people. And especially, and I and I still see Brad, and he's always so nice to me. I'm always like, God, this guy runs a major studio, and he's really nice to me. But, but even more so, Bernie. Bernie came to see me do stand-up one time, and I thought I was going to die because I was like, my God, this guy's seen, like, everybody, and he's <laughs> here seeing me, you know? That's awesome. And, uh, and he was so great to me, and... And I remember he told me a story of, of like he talked about doing hee haw like he was he just he just was talking about how he had made his money and all this other stuff and and he was such a funny guy in his own way and he was and we were outside the improv and he was like and he goes you know I he goes I I I come up with that fucking hee haw idea put a bunch of fucking hillbillies in a cornfield and have them say salute or. 
he, he was like, we didn't fucking know. Who fucking knew that was going to work? You know, he's like, John, in this business, you just never fucking know. You don't fucking know. So then it was like something else. I don't know. I, just a bunch of stuff like this, like Ghostbusters. They didn't fucking know. Who knows, Jimmy? Bob, or, you, know, or, you know, Danny comes. He's got a script for this fucking Ghostbusters. They're chasing ghosts in New York. We didn't fucking know if it was going to fucking work. You never fucking know. So he kept saying that and whatever. And at the time... They were doing um, a show with uh, uh, Moon Zappa and somebody else. One of the Zappa kids was in this show, and it was just going down the tubes. And and he was like, you know, I got to go check on this thing and whatever. He was getting ready to leave, and he's like, oh, this this script, you know, it's like this fucking, you know, this Moon Zappa thing is really going bad or, you know, something like that. And I go... And I go, well, you know, Bernie, it's like you said, you just never know. And he looks at me and goes, no, on that one, we know. <laughs> That's hilarious. I think that was with Dweezil. I think it was yeah, Dweezil. Dweezil yeah, Dweezil, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah no well, offense to Dweezil. He's a very nice person. <laughs> just the luck of the draw. The luck of the draw. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so you had a development deal. You... Um, at what point did you get to uh, thirty? I mean, that's that's a big gap. That's there. a big gap. Yeah. I was at I was at I took this deal at. Uh, now you're no longer doing stand up at this point. You're no, very seldom. I'm still doing sets at the Improv yeah. every once in a while, but uh, uh, then I took a deal at twentieth. And I was just in and out of things. I did a pilot. I did a pilot called Five Houses with Todd Holland. I did, you know, just doing stuff like that. And then, then I would say there was a period of time there where I wasn't doing particularly, you know, the stuff that the stuff that I when I was in my deal at um, this part you might want to cut out, but uh, <laughs> uh, that when I was in my deal at, at uh, Brillstein Gray, I. Uh, there was a show that Tay Leone was doing called The Naked Truth on NBC. Uh, and and it was in was Mark danger. Mark Roberts in that? Yes. And it was in danger of getting canceled. And my friend Maya was running it. And uh, Brad called me up and said, would you consider? And I had just gotten off of Larry Sanders. And he said, would you consider coming and running this show with Maya? Because we really need help. And I said... I really, really can't. I'm so tired, and I just want to go to Italy and relax and whatever. And he said, if you come, I'll give you this big amount of money. He said, if you come and the show stays on the air, I'll give you this big bonus amount of money. And, of course, since being the whore that I ultimately <laughs> am, I hiked my skirt up and said, sure. And uh, and I went on that show and it was really, really difficult. The first day I was there, I walked in, and Warren Littlefield was still at NBC, and we had the table read, and we dismissed the actors. And I didn't know Warren Littlefield. I didn't know anybody. But I was just sitting there now as the other showrunner, and the actors walked out, and Warren Littlefield looked at me and said, if this script is shot as written, I can guarantee you the show will not be on the air next week. Wow. And then he got up and left, and I was like, what do we got? And the writers huddled, and I said, what do we got, guys? And they said, we have Jenny Bix, who's a wonderful writer, was on the staff, and she said, we have a script about Nora, who was Taylor Leone's character. Nora gets a hairless cat. <laughs> and I said, well, let's go with that, <laughs> since that's all we have. That's the only other one they had ready to go? That was all we had ready oh to go. Oh, my God. And that show was really, really tough to work on because we didn't have any scripts. And it was hard because Taya was unhappy being there. And, and 
it was just not. Did you, you know, make your deadline? Did you make your? Yeah, <laughs> I got my. Uh, you got I, come over to my house. The swimming pool you see is <laughs> there because of that show. Oh, that's awesome! That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So uh, now, now you've learned the business. Now you know it obviously pretty well at this point. You're kind of you're you've show run. What was that? Three shows now. Yeah. At that point, is this something? Because I always wonder, like, would you ever do you go? Do you, have you ever gone back to being a writer on a show? Or yeah, I mean, I I worked on uh, I did the Bernie Mac show. Oh, that's right, I forgot about that. And uh, and even though I was brought on as the sh- the co showrunner on that, the guy who was my co showrunner, which was a guy named Michael Borkow, wound up leaving that show. Oh. And then when he left, a, another guy named Pete Aronson. Uh, basically came in and took it over. And then I was just like a co-executive producer. Now, did you know Bernie like from Chicago? Didn't know him at all. No? Okay. I thought no. maybe, I was like, it would make sense that you would have gone over. Remember that, did you hear about those shows he used to do, like at the black clubs, where like it was just like an event? You oh, know? yeah. And I thought, oh, that must have been, I thought for sure you might have done one of those. Because it sounds like your freeform type of uh, comedy that would, yeah. that would kind of be. No, he was just, he. I did not know him, and Larry Wilmore had created that show, and then yeah. Larry left. And... uh Kind of he, Wilmer's on the uh, Daily Show. Um, very funny. Yeah, he's a really good guy too. Uh, but like when the show, when he left, the show was kind of over. I think oh, so. And then, um, and that was on. Uh, now, is this part of the thing where you're like, it was on Fox? Does that mean your deal was with Fox, or how does that? I don't think I was in a deal then. I don't think. So you're just out there pitching and, and yeah. pitching your services to yeah. whoever. So you would go out for pilot season, like. Um, yeah, I went out for pilots and stuff called. like that. Yeah. yeah, and then I think after Bernie Mac, I did the comeback. I think that's when I did oh, the, the comeback. Oh, Lisa Kudrow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With uh, which broke Malin Ackerman. Right, yeah. that's the first time you saw her. Yeah. Um, I like the comeback. You know, I know a lot of people were like kind of hot and cold on it. I really enjoyed it. I, I was I have, very proud of it. I think it's a very good show. It's a very difficult show to watch, but it's also really, really it, funny. It makes you uncomfortable, yeah. It's, yeah, because uh, um, she is... Uh, but she's a genius. Lisa's a genius. And I knew the guy from Second City, too, the guy that played one of the writers. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, what was his uh, name? Something... But he played... Uh, Pauly G was Pauly his G, name yeah. on he, the show. He was in a um, movie that... Do you remember Pete Schwab? Yes. Yeah, he did. Pete Schwab did a movie. And he yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Godfather Green Bay or something like yeah. that, I think it's called. Um, and then I saw him at, at Second City, but I was like, oh, the guy from the comeback. Oh, he was a really nice guy. Super, super great guy. Super nice guy. Played one of the meanest guys oh, ever on television. <laughs> He's so mean to Lisa so Kudrow's character on the show. It's it's hilarious. Um, yeah, if you get, I don't know if they're showing that anymore. Um, is uh, I haven't seen her new thing. Have you? No, I haven't. I've seen some uh, some I've seen some clips of it on the yeah. internet. Yeah, it's an internet show that's going. It's, I think it's going to be on Showtime. Now, yeah. I think, or, mm-hmm. Now, are you like, is this one of the things where like you work with somebody and you maintain a relationship with them later? Like, you call up Lisa Kudrow, like, hey, you know, I'm in town or whatever. Or like, do you do you just kind of come in and out of people's lives? You know, as a, you know. Boy, that depends, and you know, that's a really interesting question because that is something that does happen. Like, there are definitely people that I've worked with that I stay in contact with. Uh, because you're working. 14 hours a day with these people. You're, yeah. like, in their lives. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's nothing. Yeah. You know? Like, Mikey Shore, who works on, you know, who does The Office and and, and now Parks and Rec, 
um, was a really good friend of mine on the comeback. And then he left to go start the office because the office was starting up wow. while the comeback was still in production. But was we had like five more episodes and he left. And that was like my brother was leaving. Oh. Now, I haven't seen him in a while. And I just ran into him at the, the Writers Guild Awards. And it was just really great to see him again and stuff because we were kind of in the trenches together on that show. And it was just, you know, you definitely forge a... There's a bond that happens there. Right. But, yeah, for sure. I mean, you're there all day and all night, you know, a lot of times. Yeah, and, you know, you're, you, know, you, you know their lives inside and out because yeah. it, it bleeds over. And also, yeah. I'm sure as writers, you, you write what you know. And so there's a lot of people like like pitching shit that's like like okay obviously that happened to you that you, know, right. you want to talk this out right well um, I always say it's like being in the writers room is like people ask me what it's like and I always say it's it is like it's like going to dinner with the same twelve people for like a fifteen hour dinner party and during that time you talk about the same six mutual friends that you all have and that's all you do <laughs> that's great I love it. That's awesome, actually. Um, do you uh, have you ever taught writing? Have you ever like? No, but my friend Lou Schneider. Do you know Louie? I know Lou Schneider some, from somewhere. Yeah, he's a comic. Um, I don't. I definitely have crossed paths with Lou Schneider because I you said it, and I was instantly I could picture his face. Yeah, Louie's teaching a class at Penn right now. Oh, really? And he was like, "Would you ever want to do that?" And I was like, "I don't know if I'd be any good at it, but it sounds intriguing." But no, I've never taught oh, okay. a class just because he seemed like one of those guys that like. You know, is is good about like, you know, expressing just how the the trial. Like, I think you would learn more from DVD commentary than you would ever learn from, you know, a, a film school. You know, right? And sure. Also, somebody like you that. who's been in there, you know, in the actual fight, could teach you a lot more. Sure. So, at what point does Thirty Rock come? Is that the next? Well, Thirty Rock after? happened after uh, Will and Grace. I was on Will and Grace the final season. And um, as a showrunner, no, I just took a I just took a job as a as a co EP on. So it. that it's, it's funny because you were on Will and Grace and Thirty Rock, and and uh, I always feel the same way about the last season. Is that it? Just was like it just seemed fun. Like yeah. it just seemed like they were going for it. Like on Will and Grace, it, you know, at that point the characters are all like established. Everybody knows the character. So everyone's just playing with that format the entire time. It just seemed like to me, at least it seemed like a really fun way to go out. You know, it was the only multi-camera show I've ever worked on that I, that I thought to myself, cause I've done mainly single camera shows and it's the only multi-camera show I've ever worked on that. I thought that I would be there on a tape night and think, Oh my God, this can really work. Like you, if you, <laughs> these aren't, this isn't just like a bad format. This is like, if you've got the right people, and they were, you know, and and all of them, Deborah and and Eric, and uh, Shawnee and and uh, Megan were all great. But but again, Sean and Megan would be like, because what would happen on that show is Jimmy Burrows would do a pass on the scene, and then we'd cut, and then the writers you'd huddle and try to pitch jokes on lines that didn't work. And then you'd give those jokes, those jokes would go in to the actors, and then you'd do the scene again. And then that was it. And then any other little pickups or anything else you'd need, we'd do that, we'd let the audience go home. So a taping of Will and Grace would only last like two and a half or three hours, which I know sounds like a long time for a half-hour comedy, but, you know, the cameras are moving up and down the alley, and it takes a while for that all to happen and stuff like that. It's incredibly fast because sometimes tapings will go on for like five hours, five and a half hours. 
Jimmy was very quick. So you would go in, you'd we'd get the scripts beforehand. We had seen, you know, we'd been through run-throughs all week. We kind of knew scene lines that were like, eh, iffy. So you would like hold on to a joke going, you know, I'll wait for dress. I'll wait for it to see how it goes. And then I've got my backup lines ready to go. And yeah, go. because you'd mark them. Like on the Thursday run-through, you're like, that, sh- that joke I think is going to die. <laughs> so Friday afternoon, you'd start writing in the margin like an alt joke. And then, honestly, you, 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 the way we do it on that show is you'd go into a huddle and it was like the New York Stock Exchange. It was like we sit around. A, there'd be a, a computer, and they'd say, "Page two. Anybody have anything?" And you'd say, I, "Eric, you know, Will's line, blah blah blah. This." And you just yell shit out and try to get heard. And because it's like the clock's ticking, and they're like, "Let's mm-hmm. go." And you get the new lines in, and you do it. And um, but it was exciting. And then the final show was a. Cry festival. Like, yeah. everybody was out of their minds weeping. It was so hard to see that show end. And I'd only been there for one year. I knew people there that had been there for eight since it started. Wow. And you talk about putting in time with people and getting to know people. I mean, this place was like a family. You know, oh, yeah. It was like, it was incredibly intense. And that's why, like, on a show like that, that was so tight, that's why you could do, like, a live show every now and then. Yeah. Um, which was and you did those on Thirty Rock too. Which you have to do what two a night? Two, yeah. Would, did you like those experiences? <laughs> best one of the best things that ever happened there. So many great things happened there, but one of the best things about Thirty Rock Live was it was on it was at Eight H. It was on the SNL stage. Oh, cool. And one of the things that I wish I would have done in my life that I haven't done is work on Saturday Night Live. And after it's we so did, weird because you've been kind of around it. Yeah, you know? you're like I the, know, and that's when I got to Thirty Rock and I met Tina. I was like, "Well, this is it." And then when we decided to do the live show, I went up to Tina afterwards and said, "You know, I never got to do that, and you sort of gave it to me because I was on the floor for good nights, and we played, and the SNL band was there playing for us, and so they kind of did the saxophony slow version of the Thirty Rock theme song." And I was like, I think I'm kind of here. Like, this is my version of it. Because I was standing with Lauren Michaels next to home base. That's awesome. Hearing goodnights, you know, and it was pretty great. How did you uh, get, did you know Tina beforehand? No. No, it was just, you you, you showrunner on that show? I was I was not the showrunner, but I was one of the. Sh- there were kind I of lieutenants. You were the yeah. Robert Carlock was the actual official showrunner, and then I was sort of the second in command guy. There was um, you had some online interviews that were pulled recently. I, w- I, w- I wanted to go see them. What what was that? Was uh, you had something on online like John Regi interviews so and so or John Regi? Oh, those were things called. Um, under the bleachers, uh, Eric Gurian, who is Tina's assistant and a very good friend of mine, just came to me one day and said, why don't you start, why don't you interview, like when we get guest stars on, why don't you interview them? Oh, cool. And uh, so we would do it, and we were kind of doing it kind of under the radar, but then, you know, New York, the the union situation is a lot more intense than it is in L.A. And so we kind of got in trouble because we weren't <laughs> really doing it. Like ah. union, the standard stuff. Oh, that sucks. So we only did a few of them. But I got to interview, I interviewed Tim Conway. I interviewed Will Arnett. I interviewed Alec, which was really fun because uh, he's my friend. So that was easy. I interviewed um, Megan. 
I did like four or five of them. Oh, cool. Did um, now that show was just obviously I've seen every episode. I just saw the finale. Mm-hmm. Um, my my girlfriend and I finally caught up on everything, and um, which is it was great because we were trying to get the interview with you done. Uh, a few months ago, and it didn't work out, and it gave me time to catch up on everything, so it was perfect. Right. So I just saw the the finale. I loved it, by the way. It's, right. It was. It's one of those like it's really heart wrenching to watch go because it's a great, great show. Yeah. And uh, I, I just think back to when the show first started, and Studio Sixty on the Sunset Strip starts at the exact same time. Right. It's Aaron Sorkin. Everyone thinks this is going to go Thirty Rock. What is this little comedy? Blah 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 blah. And then it just just springboard it, like it, the opposite happened nobody really tuned in for s- studio and uh and thir- were you guys at, aware of this like you know did you feel the pressure then or? oh yeah we when i i felt it from my agents i mean my when i went to i went out that pilot season and i thought the pilots the comedies were so dreadful that um and this is a true story too i there was a pilot that ABC had that I won't say the name of it. It never went on the air anyway, so you wouldn't know it. But I remember it specifically. And my agents were doing this thing where they were like, you should go see this pilot. It's pretty funny. And, you know, if you haven't been through this experience, what it is is you you go to the studio and they set you up in a room like this and, and they give you a DVD and they turn it on and they go, when you're done, come back in the room and we'll talk about it. And you talk to the producers and probably the writer who might also be one of the producers and you talk about what you thought was so great about it and whatever and they interview you and decide if you'd be a good fit for the show. So I watched this pilot and it's terrible. It's, <laughs> it, in my opinion, it's terrible. I don't laugh once. I think the acting's terrible. I don't, like the, the, I, I don't like the world. I don't like the story. I don't like anything about it. And this was like the fourth or fifth really bad interview I had been on of like seeing a kind of what I thought was sort of a mediocre show and or or certainly, if not mediocre, let's just say not my comedic aesthetic and not something I thought I'd be good at doing or could contribute to. But I just couldn't I like it was ending and I remember thinking, I just don't have it in me to go back in that room and play the dog and pony show again. I just can't do it. So I went up to the door and this is at ABC at Disney. I swear to God, this is the truth. I went up the door. I opened up the door. I checked the hallway to make sure that no one was there. And I ran to my car. (laughs) I fucking ran to my car, got in my car, drove away. I'm sure they, to to this day, they're probably going, whatever happened to that guy? That was supposed to come back in. Like, I left. And I called my agent, and I was like, I can't go out on any more comedy pilots. You need to send me on some drama. So I actually met with John Wells. I was thinking about going to West Wing because Aaron had just left, and they wanted to put some humor into some scripts. And I was like, well, maybe that might be a place for me to go. So I went there, met with them, whatever. So then there were two pilots left, Ugly Betty and The Untitled Tina Fey Project. So I go and we'll see Ugly Betty, and my agent and my manager's like, that's the show. That's the show you should go on. Everybody's talking about it. It's, it's going to be a giant right. show. Yes, they've got, you know, whatever, America Ferreira, blah, blah, blah. This sh- it's proven. It's already worked. It, it, it's great. So I see it. I meet with Silvio. I'm going to run it with him. I like it okay. I don't love it, but I like it okay. You know, I'm sort of, a, I can kind of be into fashion if I have to. You know, it's like whatever. <laughs> So, and then the final thing was this Tina Fey thing. And, you know, obviously I knew who Tina was. So I went to see the pilot. And I remember the moment it started, 
thinking that I loved it. And then I remember the joke that made me think I want to work on this show. And that was when Tina and Alec are talking and T- and Alec is sending Tina up to Harlem to try to get Tracy to be on the show. And he says, don't go dress like that. Um, you need to wear something professional. And she comes back and Tom Broker, who was our brilliant costume guy, who's also from SNL, put her in this pink ladies two-piece business suit that was just right comedically. It wasn't so stupid that it just looked like a costume that you wouldn't believe somebody would would ever wear, but it was enough that you knew Liz Lemon would never wear that <laughs> unless she had a gun to her head. And he was sending her up there and when he was leave when she was leaving, he said to Alec looked at her and said, And by the way, you should dress like that every day. And she said, Yeah, if I was the president of the Philippines <laughs> And I was like, I, I, as we said, I want to go to there. I want to go to there. So I wanted to do it. So then I was supposed to go to my niece's wedding in Chicago. And I got a call that said, can you go to New York and meet Tina on the way? So I flew to New York first and I met with Tina. And uh, we still talk about it now because at the time... And I've been told this before, and I don't know if you get this or not, John, but since we're both kind of gentlemen without hair, um, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm very actually, believe it or not, very shy person. Like, I don't talk a lot in a social situation and stuff like that, and I can just kind of stare. And I've been told by many people that I'm very intimidating or you look pissed or you scared me when I first met you. And I guess I didn't help the situation much with Tina because I, at the, I don't remember wearing this, but she told me when I came in to meet with her, I was wearing a blue jean jacket and a skull, like a knit cap. <laughs> and I was just kind of very quiet and looking at her. And she said to me, I thought, I thought God, this guy's going to kill me. <laughs> when, I, when she first met me, I, in the meantime, was like, it's Tina Fey. I can't think of anything to say where I'm not going to sound foolish, so I didn't say very much. So then she explained to me that I wouldn't be the showrunner, that Robert would be the showrunner, but they needed somebody else to be there to be, like, second in command because they had never done a a single-camera show before, and I had done a lot of them. And she must have known, you know, Larry Sanders. Yeah, and she knew all that, and she had read my stuff, and she really liked it. And But Robert had worked with her on SNL for years and produced Weekend Update when she was hosting it and stuff. So she has had a long experience with Robert and still does now. They have their company together. But so I met with her and then she said, okay, the way this works is if if um, the people that I'm going to have work on the show have to meet with Lauren, can you are you free to meet with Lauren tonight? I don't know what time he'll want to meet you, but he'll call and they'll set up a time. And I said, sure, I'm here. It was a Tuesday. I said, I'm here. I'm here till Wednesday I'm not leaving till like 11.30, my flight. I met with Lauren at quarter to one in the morning. Oh, wow. Because that's his deal. And on SNL on Tuesday nights, that's when they pitch to the, the writers come in and pitch to the, the guest host, and then they stay up all night and write. So I went to 30 Rock at like, they told me to be there at midnight. I think I got in with him about 12.30. I was in with him for an hour. He didn't ask me what I thought of the show. He didn't ask me why I wanted to work on it. He, we we talked about 
Julia Sweeney, because we both know her. We talked about Saturday Night Live. We talked about music. Um, I think he talked about the Hamptons, that he was going out to the Hamptons. Um, I remember he had a big bowl of popcorn that he ate. Oh, my God. Um, And he was very nice to me, but didn't ask me a, a question about the show. We talked about Mean Girls. Um, he said, I knew Mean Girls was going to be a hit as soon as Tina came up with the title. And um, <laughs> You know what's amazing? We, we interviewed uh, Tishon Shannon, and he does a spot. Like, you guys sound exactly like yeah. you're doing your Lauren. I'm actually doing Mike Shore doing Lauren. But anyway, <laughs> so, uh, but he was great. And for me, quite frankly, meeting Lauren Michaels was one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me because I'm old enough to remember when Lauren Michaels held up $100 on SNL and said, I'm offering $100 to the Beatles, the Beatles. to come down here and play right that's now. Awesome. And, uh, and I just couldn't believe I was sitting in a room with him. So I left, but I was like, okay, that was it. That was good. That's going to be that experience. And I remember I walked back to my hotel. I was staying at, uh, I was staying at, uh, on 49th street. Um, I'm sorry, at 59th and uh, at Central Park, you know, Central Park right there. Um, And I walked up Fifth Avenue and I remember texting my agents and saying, see if you can get me on Ugly Betty because I didn't get this job. I'm sure I didn't get this job. And I flew to Chicago and when I got off the plane, there were like five messages on my BlackBerry that I had gotten the job. And then I moved to New York. Wow. And started it. Did you live in New York before that ever? Never. Wow. Did, and, uh, even as a stand-up, you didn't... Oh, wow. I'd been there a couple times to do stand-up, but nothing... That's awesome. That's a great story. Yeah. And just the idea that... Like, I've heard that so much, though, with people going, yeah, I didn't get it. I didn't get this thing. I really want this thing. I didn't get it. I, they, and they get back to the hotel room, whatever, and it's like... I don't know what it is about that feeling that's just got to be, like, the low to high. Especially, like, you call ugly buddy, you're like, oh, yeah, guess what, you know? And also when you're talking about, to me, what I would consider to be comedic royalty. Like, yeah. that's... Oh, yeah. Like, just being in that building, just being in... Just being at near the studio and just being near the studio, the stage of Saturday Night Live for whatever it's gone through and the, and the years of its ups and downs and whatever, I, I have very little tolerance for people that say, Oh, SNL, you know, whatever to which I always say, you know what, why don't you show me your show that's been on for 35 yeah, exactly. years? The live who's, show who's who has show you, you show me the, the, another, the other person who has basically found pretty much the lion, the lion's share of all major comedic talent that has come out of this country in the last 35 years, Lauren Michaels had him first. And the guy's a genius, yeah. in my opinion. You know, he's a crazy, funny, wonderful, really great man who I have such admiration from, from that when I'm around him socially, I have to stop myself, especially if I've had a couple glasses of wine, from just being like, you know, oh, my God, you know, like... <laughs> Like the last time I saw him, I will say, um, I I was leaving the show and I went over to say goodbye to him. We were at Alex's wedding, and I went over and just was like, I I just need to say this, so let me say it. And I kind of just emotionally vomited all over him and said how much it meant to work on Thirty Rock. Oh, that's awesome. I also met Woody Allen at that same wedding. No, and that was terrible. 
Oh. It was terrible yeah. meeting him? It was just, again, David was like, that's what he had. First of all, we're at the we're at Alex's wedding, and it's we're sweltering. I know you want to talk about Thirty Rock. We'll no, no, no. But we're sweltering heat. Me? We're at Saint we're at Saint Pat's downtown in Nolita. No air conditioning. It's we're just melting. Everybody, everybody. Like I take my jacket off. We're just. It's so hot. It's a hot. Whatever day it was that they got married. It's like July or August. Just this hot muggy day, five o'clock in the afternoon, whatever it was, sitting there, whatever, we're sitting in the thing, David nudges me, he's like, Woody Allen and soon Lee, two rows behind us. He's so I pretend to the the organist is playing Ave Maria. <laughs> so I pretend to, you know, being a big admirer of organ music, <laughs> I pretend to like turn around to look and there's Woody Allen sitting there. So he's at the reception and um you know, pretty much the whole time, someone's always talking to him. Either he and Lauren are talking because he was sitting at Lauren's table, or people are coming up to him and talking to him. And uh, and so finally, there's kind of a break. And David again goes, goes, "Listen, he's your one of your idols. Just go over and say hi. Just say hello." And I was like, I don't want to. I don't want to. I feel like this is going to be like Stardust Memories. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to do this. Whatever. And uh, and Dave was like, just go over and say hi. You're going to leave this party. You're not going to fucking say hello to Woody Allen. You've got to go say hi to him. So I was like, okay. So I go over, and someone had gotten in front of me. And honestly, approaching him, I kept saying it. It was like it was like O'Hare. Oh, yeah. It was just like there's like one person after another, and we're all kind of spaced <laughs> out, and we're all just on approach to Woody Allen. And I remember the guy in front of me. I couldn't really see him because there was a guy standing in front of me, and I was waiting. And the guy moved away, and I saw this momentary relief on Woody Allen's face of like, thank God that person left. And then he saw me walking toward him, and his he just he just crumpled. He was like, oh, it was just so much like here comes another one. <laughs> But I was, you know, I was on approach. I couldn't abort. I was like, I'm going in, you know. So I I walk up and I go, uh, and I put my hand out and I'm like, hi, Mr. Allen. I'm a friend of Alex and I'm a writer. And for a moment, his ears prick up when he hears writer. I'm, I go, I'm a writer on 30 Rock. And uh, and I just want to tell you, you're such a big fan. I'm, I'm such a big fan of yours. And, and, and I've... I just really think you're a genius, and I just wanted to say hello, and it's a real honor to meet you. And he looked at me, and he barely shook. He shook my hand. I would do it with you, but it's literally like just imagine shaking a wet diaper. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and, uh, I I shake his hand, and I go, I'm just such a big fan. I just want to say hello. And he literally looks at me and goes, "Uh, yeah, do you have any idea when they're going to bring out the food? (laughs) You've inspired me. In a- yeah, and I said, I don't know. I don't you know, maybe, don't really know when that's going to happen. But really great meeting you. <laughs> the food, so Food should be on your short list. But, yeah, but getting back to Lauren. Lauren's another big hero. How often was he on the set, Lauren? Very seldom. I mean, he was there at the beginning, but he, he trusted Tina yeah. and us to do the show and... Did NBC ever come after you guys for all? I mean, you guys really shit on NBC all the time. They loved it, strangely oh, they? enough. They thought it was the funniest thing 
that that we would make fun of them in that way. They never interfered that I know of, or very rarely, maybe a couple of times, but very, very rarely over the years. Hominem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, no, they didn't, they, they never bugged us. Oh, wow. So um, you were there, the, uh, you were directing ads, you know, what, what, how many how many shows did you direct there? I directed about eighteen of them. I did think. you okay? So like, how many per season? You'd be like what? Like the first year I directed one. I asked Tina if I could direct, and uh, and she said yes. And it was very scary because the the one thing that I would say about that place is if you're gonna if you're gonna if you ask to take a swing, you better you make better contact yeah. with the ball. I mean, you better take a swing, and. Um, and it can be a very intimidating place there because Alec is not someone to be trifled with and whatever, but Alec has always, for whatever reason, liked me. And he was very kind to me on my first directing gig, and as was the crew. Um, and, and it went well, you know, and I was lucky, and it went good. And so I directed one the first season, and then I directed three the second season, and then I directed, I don't know, Five or six, the third, and five or six, the fourth. Like, do you have your storyboards? Do you have everything you want to do? Or the like... first time I did it, I did yeah. storyboards. But then, like, once you start... When I when I still do things that are complicated, like the one I just went back for, I just went back for one on the left, because I left season seven, but I went back and directed one. And I directed this one where Tina uh, was trying to get to Jane because... Uh, to Jenna, Jenna and uh, Liz and Alec were trying to get to Jenna because they realized that Jenna was from Florida and she held the key to the election. And so uh, it was kind of a race and Alec basically walked through the backstage and then Stina, Tina, Tina came tra- traveling behind him and she had to go through this obstacle course and there was a guy, two guys carrying a big pane of glass and Lutz came in with a big thing of marbles and Tina had to parkour <laughs> off the wall and down and then it ended with her running towards the set, running to the crash doors and uh, there was like a wily Coyote road with a... a cactus on it like a little set thing that two grips were were setting down and first and the joke was initially she started running towards that like that's where i'm supposed Mm -hmm. to go and then she was like oh what am i doing and she ran through the crash doors and as she ran through the crash doors we had put up a, a paper flat that was a photograph of what you see down the hallway so basically she ran through a big paper photograph and then turned around and was like why do we even have that you know and um it's a very funny scene i remember so that was that was complicated that was a that was a very complicated thing there was another one i did called that was one of my favorites that i ever did called uh now, was t- it written like that yes so okay this isn't something you came up with no right no now. no it was in the script and okay. then you have to figure out how you're going to shoot it yeah. um and then there was another one called the tuxedo the the tuxedo returns or the tuxedo rises anyway it was sort of our batman takeoff and and liz realized that if she acted like a crazy person she could get a lot of room on the subway (laughs) and um and that and in the meantime jack had gone through uh one of those construction tunnels in new york and someone had mugged him and he became afraid to go out in new york 
And so at the very, very end, he, he went back to the tunnel where he had gotten mugged to kind of wa- – he wanted to walk through it again to prove he wasn't afraid anymore. And at that point, Tina popped up in front of him kind of looking like the Joker. She had makeup all over her face <laughs> and stuff like that. And then he was – and then Alec had to pick Tina up and basically throw her over his head. And then she flipped over in the air and landed on a big pile of garbage. And then he realized it was Lem, and he didn't really know that. So that was like, like that sequence. It's helpful to do storyboards because you're basically talking to stunt people and all your camera people, and saying, "Here are the shots, and here's what I need." Mm-hmm. And like we buried, we actually wound up not using it, but we buried a little miniature camera in the trash. Oh, cool! So that when Tina's double, and it was a very cool shot, but we just didn't have time for it. It went out in the final edit. But there was a there was a shot of literally this body, this person flying through the air, wow. like handing right towards the garbage and stuff like that. So that when you do stuff like that, I find it helpful to storyboard it, but not always. I don't certainly don't do it as much as I used you, to. Um, like how much when you're talking about editing, how much do you have to? How much do you lose? Like uh, on Thirty Rock, on the average, I'd say we cut out like seven minutes wow. out of an episode. That's a lot. Yeah. It's basically almost you have t- on a on a sitcom you have twenty one twenty one twenty is your running time, and most of our episodes would come in at like twenty nine. So you're cutting out a quarter of that. Yeah, never see it. Wow. Are there like are there some like favorite jokes that never made it? Or? Oh yeah. Yeah. Because you know at a certain at initially in thir- in Thirty Rock you start to cut the fat you start to cut the fat, yeah. but because 30 Rock was so joke heavy. At a certain point, you just start cutting jokes. Yeah. There's no way around it. So Every everybody's dialogue has a joke in it. So if you cut a line, you've cut a joke, oh. and that's really hard because some of the jokes are so funny. And was, was uh, I just thought of something? Was it weird um, the season you came back when you had to deal with the Tracy issue of um, the two episodes that you guys? Uh, dealt with his it was kind of mirroring his personal life at the time where he made those comments publicly and you guys did two storylines was that planned to like you know like okay we're we wanted to have a tracy heavy episode or we're going to attack this we're going to kind of you know yes we wanted to get in front of the ball on that it was and, uh, brilliant it was really well done and you're talking about the gay stuff yeah right? yeah yeah, yeah we decided to uh get in get a, get in front of it it's funny because people i think tuned in seeing like oh how are they going to handle this and they just Wow, you guys, that, that was like, it reminded me again of like something like Larry Sanders where it was in the moment for like pop culture at the same time. It was a really good storyline. It was like, right. Like, and, uh, and that's what I love about 30 Rock is that there are these, like, like the last season, like when she's, doesn't at one point she start the show by singing the theme song? <laughs> yeah. One of them. Like you guys just seemed like you were just fucking around, like, like amazing the last, the last season, just like having a blast, like just going out with like, you know, are you at that point you emptying your notebook going, all right, here, what, what stuff has it, have we gotten on? Well, Absolutely. We tried yeah. to be very pop culture aware. And also we were always aware of any good story that we heard in the room, there was a when Tina and Jeff bought their new apartment. They have a beautiful apartment, and and uh, they had renovated it. And Tina came in and told me that Jeff was obsessed about the fact that they had done this renovation and it was beautiful and all designed and everything. And it's, it's an amazing place, but that outside their bedroom window, 
there there's a supermarket in New York called Gristidi's, and there was a plastic Gristidi's bag in this window, <laughs> uh, in this stuck in this tree. And Jeff could not get over it. He was like, we spent all this money. We have this fucking, it could be an architectural digest, this beautiful place. And there's a fucking Gristidi's bag out my window. <laughs> like, he called the city and was like, you need to come and get it out of this thing. And they're like, we're not going to climb in a tree and get a bag out. We're going <laughs> to screw you. And then he wanted to take it down. And you're not allowed to touch the trees in New York. Like, you're, you can get oh. fined for touching trees. Or, you know, getting up there and, like, yeah. clipping them or something. So... I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard in my life. And we did an episode where Liz Lemon got obsessed about this bag that was stuck in a tree outside of her apartment, and uh, which is an episode that I directed. And uh, so we were always looking for stuff like oh, that, cool. too. Did uh, any of your personal stuff come get in there? Um, the one that I would say is the most personal... Or in any of your shows, did you? I would say a lot of. The, I would say. I, I will say this, Colleen. Uh, 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 God, <laughs> she's gonna kill me when I can't think of her name. Um, his mother, oh, Elaine Stritch. Yeah. Elaine Stritch. Elaine Stritch was sort of based on my mom oh, okay. because I would talk about my mother all the time, and uh, and so my mom, my mom, who was a very wonderful sweet but very demanding italian lady was sort of the um was a bit the the kind of uh the inspiration for for oh, her cool. so every time we did one of those stories i directed elaine a lot which was difficult um and uh but i i have a real soft spot in my heart for all those episodes because um they were about moms. Like we did this one episode called "The Moms," yeah. and uh, yeah. Those. Did you? Did, is your mom still with us? No, she died three years ago. Did she? Were you doing the character? Yeah. Then? So did she? Did she know? Yeah, she knew. Oh, okay. Like when 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 he backed over her with the car, <laughs> that happened to my mom. Like what? my my niece backed over her with a car, oh and so we did that. We did that story. Oh my gosh, she was yeah. a tough lady. Yeah, she was pretty tough. Yeah. So you go up Italian? Uh, yeah. Was it uh, you know, manja always eat? You always eating the? Uh, oh yeah. The gravy. Yeah. I uh, had some Italian friends that pretty much yeah I I spent all my holidays with them. You know, even you know I would sneak out of my. Okay, we should wrap. Um, so uh, you've now got your new project. Are we rolling again? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You've now got your new project. How much can you talk about it? Or sure. Oh, okay. So it's this. Uh, uh, you want to just go ahead? If you want. It's called Super Fun Night, and it's um, uh, it's not something that I've written. I, I directed it, but uh, it's with Rebel Wilson, and uh, she. If you don't know who Rebel is, she is. You will soon, and she was. Uh, one of the things that people know her a lot for, she was in Bridesmaid. She was the blonde roommate of uh, Kristen Wiig from Australia. Um, and um, she did a pilot. She did this pilot called Super Fun Night for CBS uh, last pilot season, and it was a multi-camera with an audience. And uh, But ABC and CBS were in a bidding war over it. And CBS did the pilot, 
bought the pilot, shot the pilot, and then as often happens, decided not to pick it up for the fall season. So in kind of a rare move, ABC said, we really want it because it's hard to get stuff away from a network when a network passes on something for whatever reason, they're very reluctant to give it to somebody else because if they give it to you and then you turn it into a hit, then they kind of look bad. Right. But, scrubs, scrubs is that way, right? Yeah. Well, I th- also think I think uh, Third Rock from the Sun was also a show that was not initially developed for NBC. Oh. But anyway, um, so they uh, they got this pilot and set it up at ABC and uh, here at my studio at Warner Brothers, um, the, my development team just kind of came to me and said, "Would you want to sit down with Rebel and talk to her about it?" Did you, know, and, did you know who she was at that time? Oh, I knew who she okay. was, yeah. But I didn't know her at all. And so I did, and uh, and we seemed to kind of, you know, mesh pretty well. And uh, and I came on board initially just as the executive producer. And then uh, we were looking for a director, and I was like, well, I'll do, I'd like to direct it. <laughs> and then initially that was kind of a bit of an uphill battle because the other thing is, is it... it it's it's one thing to direct an episode of a TV show. You do the it's another thing to direct the pilot. The pilot is like they – and rightly so. Networks don't necessarily want to hand over a pilot to you because you're kind of naming it and you're kind of putting your stamp on it. And if you haven't done that very much, they're not very uh, excited to let you do that necessarily. So it's kind of a catch-22 of like you can't generally direct a pilot unless you've already directed a pilot, which yeah. – catches you in kind of a weird spot but also it's the, one of those rare instances i don't know it's the case of drama i don't know if it is with with comedy where the if you direct a pilot you get paid every episode after that no matter what is that is that you you get what you get is if you uh become an executive producer on it and you've directed the pilot you yeah you kind of get a chunk of the what the value of the pilot is over time in success. If the show winds up being on the air for five years or something like that, then... Because yeah, I know yeah. that that's how they get, like, larger directors for, say, like, those shows on FX or whatever. Like, just... Yeah. Because they'll do the pilot and then... Yeah. You know. Like, Jimmy Burroughs, like, if you want Jimmy Burroughs to direct your pilot, you give him a piece of the show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Business. Yeah. Um, so you... Uh, you directed the pilot. You've just finished. Uh, you said you're working on it. Did it? Did you wrapped it? Or we we have um, we locked the picture again today, um, which uh, means that uh, you know now it will. We're still doing little things to it that we can do little visual effects and stuff like that. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, it's locked. Um, we're in the process of scoring it right now for okay. music. And then it goes to the network, and they do their testing process with it. Um, and then, you know, they decide whether or not they're going to pick it up. Is this a score that, like, you know is going to be – like, do, how much changes usually from that moment till it actually becomes – say they pick it up. Like, there, there could be actors that are different, right? And there could be um, music. Because you said something about the score. But doesn't it change once they pick it up? Doesn't it become a – um, they start, okay, now let's go back to the pilot. And, and I, I don't know if I'm speaking correctly here, but my, 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 uh, my thinking of it is that a pilot 
gets bought by the by the network. They're like, okay, we're going to go with it. But they go back to it and kind of, now let's change a couple things, you know, and, and fuck with it a little bit more. Is that the case or is it? Um, they certainly can. I, I don't think that's the general rule. I mean, generally, if you if you get them, you know, the, the network sort of has to, like in this process. Because that pilot, we, is that the same pilot that's going to be seen by everybody? Yes. Oh, it is. Okay. Unless we decide not to show it or, not, or reshoot right. it or whatever. But like right now, ABC is very happy with it. That obviously could change. But in other words, when we score it right now, like we're not going to hand it in until the end of March. When we score it, we will show it to ABC and they will give us notes and say, we like this or could you put more music in here or could you do this or you know what I mean? Like they they have their input so that you're not handing them anything that they haven't seen before. They haven't been able to comment on so there really ultimately isn't too much of a reason for them to say well now we're going to go in and change right. this other thing that we want to that we want to change when when you were at 30 rock with it what was the notes process like was it you know were they they leave you alone pretty much towards the end you know because uh we got we got our share of notes we didn't yeah. ever get notes that like i don't remember them ever saying to us this episode just doesn't work and you need okay. to throw it out, which I've been on other shows where right. that's happened. You know, they'd have things of like saying, can you give us a little bit more Jack here? Are we tracking Liz's, you know, are we tracking Liz enough through this part of the story or whatever? Yeah, so um, now that you're starting this new show, is it one of those things where they're going to be a little bit more note heavy early with you trying to tweak the show like if it gets picked up is that something you're looking forward to do you like dealing with notes and people or um you know i i like uh i think they help i think that i will say this i think this develop the development team at warner brothers these particular ladies that i work with are really some of the best people that i've worked with um you know you always have that thing between a writer and executives where you you may have already gone down that path that they're pitching as an idea. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like they'll say to you, why don't you do this? And you're like, well, we've already yeah. done that. And they'll say, well, why don't you try it anyway again? That's hard to navigate that. But at the same time, at the end of the day, everybody's just trying to make the show better. And I think that's the thing to keep in mind. And, you know, I have found it's just about making sure they – making sure they're heard and making sure that you're respectful of what they're trying to bring to the process. And sometimes they really do have a really good idea. I think as writers, you know, sometimes we can get so caught up in the way we think it should be that we're not considering that somebody's, you know, they're reading it and going, I'm not getting this. Like yeah. you re- you know, it's, it's hard to fight somebody when they're, when you say, when they go, boy, really, I didn't get that, that the idea of the show was supposed to be this. It's like, well, you're reading it, and if you're not getting it, well, then I've done something wrong, probably. So March happens. You show it. How fast do you hear? Um, generally, you you know, the upfronts are in May in New York. Um, generally, they let you know the end of April. So do you find out at the upfronts? Or no, they or tell you ahead yeah. of time. They tell you ahead of time. But, but television is volatile. I mean, I've heard people – I've heard stories of – Actors being told, okay, you're gonna, your show got picked up, oh, no. and they're on their way to LAX, and they get a call that says, Dad, go home. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you know, so it does happen that way, 
but it can it can be very it's very fun you know it's very fun to go to New York and see your show get presented and stuff like that and what do you like more now? Do you like directing, writing? Are you are you going to be writing any of these episodes if it goes? Yeah, I'll be writing too. I mean, I like directing. I like both. You know, I I don't think I like one more than the other. I think directing is uh, is uh, very. Uh, uh, I will say I feel I feel like I know a lot less about directing than I know about writing, and so therefore it's more kind of more exciting to me right. because I'm learning it more as I go. Uh, and you know, I just like learning about cameras and stuff like that. And like, I it's like stupid shit. Like, I'll watch a commercial and think, oh, I know how they did that. <laughs> you know, what I mean. Whereas before, I would always think, how they how they get that shot? And it's like, you just start using equipment, and you're like, oh, that's the way that works. You know what I mean? So, are you interested at all in like doing your own movies, or like you gonna? Is it is it always television for you, or do you do you think? No, I'd love to do a movie. My friend Volley Chandra Sakharin, who's a really great writer from uh, Thirty Rock, has a, a really funny movie called Meth Kings that we're working on right now. Oh, that's now. awesome. That's uh, that we shot a short pilot, almost like a pilot presentation of a movie. Oh, that's awesome. It's only like fifteen minutes long. But uh, we shot it, and my friend Matt Clark, who's my DP at 30 Rock, got us all this free equipment. Thank awesome. you, Matt. Thank you, Panavision. Um, <laughs> That's how Sling Blade happened. That's how a lot of things happened. Yeah. So, I, you know, we're doing stuff like that, and, yeah, there's other things. That's great. And so anything else on the horizon? Would... Uh, you know, there's a bunch of stuff here that I'm trying to work on. I have a, I have a very cool project that I really like a lot, uh, that I wrote with my friend John Hoffman called the new neighbors about, and it was, we wrote it before the neighbors came out. So we had to change the name, but, and we're doing it with the Henson company. All right. And basically it's, uh, it's a very sort of cool project that we're working on, um, that we thought we sort of had set up at NBC, but then it just kind of didn't really work out for them. Oh. It'll work out somewhere else. Yeah. Um, it's a logical point. Any questions you guys got? You want to ask John why he's still here? Um, anything yeah. about the, the uh, Drew? Uh... <laughs> Not Drew. My girlfriend wanted to say she loved the uh, Greenzo episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, with David Schwimmer. Um, the Drew, what are, you, what are you going for there? I was going to say, do you want to ask me about uh, the show I didn't work on? Oh, that's all right. Oh, the Dana Carvey show. Dana yeah, Carvey yeah, show. Yeah, the Dana Carvey show. <laughs> yeah. So, what was it like? You had Steve Carell, Steve Colbert. I mean, that was a really the great cast. Yeah. Well, the remember the racists and whatever. Yeah. Uh, I saw the opening sh- uh, show of that, and I was I was not the biggest Dana Carvey fan, but my God, that was uh, uh, that blew me away. I was like, oh my God, television has changed. And, yeah. And uh, sure enough, they were off the air the next week. Yeah. <laughs> but it was hilarious. Um, it was hilarious, and you were hilarious. And thank you so much for uh, for making this happen. We really appreciate it. We know your time is is valuable, and uh, thanks for inviting us down here. And John, thanks, guys. Um, we'll talk to you again. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you.